2: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. This hour, we're focusing on artificial intelligence, or AI. For Avengers fans out there, you know what happened when Tony Stark took AI too far. Supervillain Ultron tried to wipe out humanity.
3: You want to protect the world, but you don't want it to change. How is humanity saved if it's not allowed to evolve?
2: That's from Marvel's Age of Ultron. But AI isn't science fiction. It's used in all sorts of ways today. Pew Research Center posed this question as emerging algorithm-driven artificial intelligence continues to spread. Will people be better off than they are today? Nearly 1,000 experts weighed in on that question and agreed AI will make us more efficient. But at what cost? Coming up, we'll talk about privacy concerns and how AI is impacting everything from our shopping experiences to healthcare to the criminal justice system. And you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. First, what exactly is artificial intelligence and how will it affect us? Uh, joining us from a studio at Harvard University is Judith Donath, advisor at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard and author of The Social Machine. Judith, welcome to our show. Hi, nice to be here. So artificial intelligence or AI, what exactly is it? Is it really a buzzword?
0: It's not a buzzword, but it's not something I would describe as something you could answer exactly. Um, the, the term right now is being used in two somewhat different ways. Um, there's a lot of work being done in machine learning, where that's where we are taking a lot of big data sets and f- using computers to find all kinds of patterns in them and also to be able to learn from what they've looked at and to predict future things to be able to navigate cars, et cetera. So that's one big area. Then there's another use of the word AI that's more along the line of things like Alexa, personal assistance, things that converse with us, where that's sort of the classic science fiction version of computers that have personalities that can become friends and companions. And in the real science fiction version, um, potentially can become conscious beings on, on their own.
2: When we think of artificial intelligence, again, you talked about machine learning and the use of data. We also hear about algorithms, but
0: before we get to the algorithms, you have to have good data? Um, yes. Well, for instance, a lot of what the data is being used for is to learn, to predict something, to be able to do something in the future. So, if you have, um, for, so for instance, if you want to predict who is going to be a, uh, a good candidate to be paroled, and you're looking at the past data, if all the past data you had represent really poorly judged cases where people made bad judgments and you use a computer to train on that, it will do very similar things and it will make similar judgments than what had been done in the past. So that would be, I think, what a lot of people call bad data.
2: And we'll be talking more about um, how uh, data is being used in the criminal justice system for things like bail assessment that's coming up. Uh, mm-hmm. But when we think about artificial intelligence, uh, the, even the term or the idea that um, you know, computers can be, can be doing what humans uh, do today, can that be traced all the way back to Alan Turing, for example?
0: Yes. Um, he wrote a paper in 1950 called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, um, in a lot of ways, this was more that second use that I said of, of sort of the entities that we relate to. And he was um, his question was, you know, can we think of machines as being intelligent? And so a lot of the research since then has focused on the test he set up to say whether a machine could be intelligent, because he said these are such loose, fuzzy words, it really can't answer this question. And so he came up with what he called the imitation game, where you have a computer that can converse with you in such a way, if it's by text and you can't see it, that a human judge could not distinguish whether you ha- were whether it was a computer or a human. So that's also in that sort of conversational side. It's gotten into a lot of the little tricks that are used to fool people into thinking they're talking to something sentient. Mm-hmm. But I think he was also, if you look more at what he spoke about, he was also talking about how a computer would become so intelligent. He was very interested in issues like how it would learn, how it would pick up, you know, he proposed being making computers that you could teach like a child. And now some of the most current AI research is actually using approaches like that, mixing some traditional methods in um, artificial intelligence, where you just sort of tried to program in all the ideas and have a, a lot of programmed logic with the sort of current neural network learning where you give it a lot of data and help it find patterns. And they're finding that this is a way of of training much more complicated um, information into the machine. So yes, it is definitely traceable to Turing in both directions. Uh, Joining us today from a studio
2: at Harvard University is Judith Donath, advisor at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard and author of The Social Machine as we uh, dive into, try to decode what it means, artificial intelligence, especially if you're not a mathematician or a computer scientist. You can join our conversation with questions you may have about artificial intelligence, how it impacts us in our daily lives, even some of the concerns you may have today, the number to call 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Judith, uh, listeners may be hearing uh, often about uh, artificial intelligence today, but uh, just tracing what how AI has
0: evolved through the decades, can you uh, maybe describe some early applications of it? Well, one of the earliest, again, spawned by Turing's paper and now having a renaissance today, was um, the interest in being able to use a computer as a therapist. Um, a few years, about 10 years after 15 years after Turing wrote, um, a professor at MIT named Weisen, Joseph Weizenbaum created the first chatbot named Eliza. And he was interested in using natural language for, for people to communicate with computers. Um, and it was framed as a therapist. He didn't mean it to be a real therapist. That was just an easy way of being able to have a computer that could only ask very simple questions seem smarter than it was um, but that's became much to his dismay there became a lot of you interest in the idea of computers as therapists um, for a long time after that there was a lot of work in trying to do different reasoning problems with computers There have always been a lot of interest in playing games so first having you know getting a computer to play checkers, getting it to play chess, um, more recently getting it to play Go, um, partly because these are very measurable benchmarks of how, how well it can do in a very constrained problem. Um, a lot of what's interesting, too, is what we've learned about how complex human thinking is by trying to imitate it. There's a possibly mythical story that Professor, Professor Marvin Minsky at MIT I think in the late 60s maybe gave a student as a summer project the problem of solving machine vision of getting a computer to see which you know at first thought seemed fairly easy and is still not quite a solved problem you know decades later so part of that was we learned a lot about how much vision is about your knowledge of the world and not just processing the raw visual data that comes into your eyes.
2: Mm. That's interesting. When we think about um, how uh, there's a lot of attention on uh, driverless uh, vehicles and the technology needed to maybe avoid uh, that pedestrian who, instead of using the crosswalk, may walk into the middle of the road, Uh, will the, will the, uh, the AV actually stop?
0: Right, and you know, one of the ways to think about it is if you look at how really tiny children navigate the world. You know, like babies are always putting things in their mouth, and you know, they have they will crawl off the edges of tables and things like that. If you you know so foolishly put them on one, part of it is that it it's a combination of your senses that go into actually being able to see. So as they're kind of training their eyes they have to reach and touch things and it's the experience of touching something combined with seeing it that helps them start to learn about how you see distance how you how you do this really complicated thing of being able to recognize that something is the same object even when you look at it at different angles and the image that comes into your eye from those different angles is actually a, a quite different image mm. but you you still see it as an object, so that's part of what you have to get a computer to do. Is it's not just, you know, being able to pick apart the pixels, but how do you map that whole world of things? Um, part of it with driving, and you know, if you're teaching a teenager to drive, you realize how much you're thinking about, like, okay, watch people who are walking, watch door, car doors that may open. You know, you have a whole model in your head of what parts of the scene do you predict are going to change and what parts don't? And it turns out getting all of that, what seems to us like common sense knowledge, into a machine is very, very hard. When we think about
2: emerging technology, uh, Judith, uh, trust is a factor. Uh, there have been some recent studies that um, show that humans actually are more apt to trust uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning uh, because it's, it's a computer. Should we, should we put all our trust uh, in these machines?
0: No. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a there's a, a bunch of really interesting issues to un- unpack mm-hmm. with that. And so part of it is, you know, there's a long, there's a a book with a great title, it's called like, How to Lie with Statistics, that we tend to trust things that we think have some scientific or mathematical basis behind it. And if they truly do, they are trustworthy. But it means that wrapping something in the wording or the appearance of science can make us trust things that don't actually have that as their real foundation. So as you mentioned earlier, there's certainly problems with the fact that computer programs can be trained on bad data and they will give the same poor results that we were getting originally. Um, There's issues. There's also issues around if you are... um, communicating with a machine that's conversing with you, can it be, it can easily be, well, not easily, but it can be designed to mimic all the, the phrasing or the tonalities of someone who is actually trustworthy. Now in a human voice, that may be coming out because they don't have a lot of doubts. There's particular timings that are different when someone's telling the truth, etc., Um, There may be ways if someone feels uncomfortable about what they're saying that their emotional response to their own discomfort comes out in their voice, etc. You don't get that with a computer. It can always sound authoritative and reassuring no matter what the validity of the things it's saying is. Judith Donath again, is advisor
2: at the Berkman Klein Center at
0: Harvard, joining us
2: today from a studio at Harvard, author of The Social Machine. Today, we're talking and learning about artificial intelligence. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nath Now, do you think about how AI is impacting you? What questions do you have? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're learning more about artificial intelligence, known as AI, with guest Judith Donath, uh, advisor at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, author of The Social Machine. She's joining us from a studio at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, how is machine learning changing our lives, from decisions made in criminal justice or by insurers to even our shopping experiences? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at where we live, I wanted to take a quick call. Punkage is calling from Rocky Hill. Punkage, go ahead.
3: Yeah, hi, Lucy. Great topic here uh, on where we live. Uh, really excited to hear this. So uh, I, I wanted to make uh, two comments actually. Number one is uh, I'm a practicing data scientist, so I see the, uh, you know AI being used everywhere, as your guest uh, uh, correctly mentioned, it's a whole spectrum of things. But uh, it's right in front of us, a lot of this stuff which we don't see. you always talk about, like driverless cars and things in the future. But a simple recommender engine in Amazon, uh, which when you shop, like uh, predicting what you'd like to buy next, is basically uh, some form of AI. But the second most important thing I wanted to, uh, you know, comment on was this idea of like ethical AI, which everybody uh, likes to talk about. And you you are touching on that right now, is uh, the idea that, you know, machines are going to be ethical or like things like that uh one important point about that is that uh you know we are building this algorithm human beings so this idea of like machines being ethical is kind of you know you know outside of that because uh the the machines or the algorithms are going to be as ethical as people building them so that gets to the idea of like the what kind of data you use what kind of variables you put in your models how you validate them and do you correct like when you get like you know. Uh, Problems, right? Like in in, in, in context of uh, a, a bail hearing, right? Yes. So I think the process you would normally apply for any kind of like you know uh, you, you know a model building and then validation it applies to AI in general. So I think uh, you know the uh, ethics of AI are going to be very closely tied with the ethics of human beings.
2: Well, great point, uh, Punkage. I wanted to make. I want to have our guests uh, respond to uh, what you raised, uh, Judith. Were you able to hear Punkage? Yes. So tell us about what are your thoughts about ethical AI, as he was saying?
0: Well, I think his his point that, you know, you have the same questions about, you know, are the it's not. Well, part of it is, are you using good data? Part of it is also, are you doing it for for good purposes, um, I think, is another issue. Um, there's issues around transparency. Can you see what's going on? Or are you just being given a result and told this is the truth? Um, So there's a a pretty wide range of of ethical pieces here. I think one that may get not quite enough attention is that there's a a sort of um, arms race between AI and our ability to sense how we're being manipulated. And that's one of the pieces I worry about. So I think there's a whole set of things around data and and what's the right data to be using and what we want to predict. But There's also some use cases about it. And so for instance, the issues around recommendations or following um, how looking at ways to advertise better to people. Um, Can we make these big AI systems that are study human behavior really well? Yes, we can. How we use these is also a big question because I think we're building systems that are going to be experts at manipulating us. And is that something we want to have? The Data could be perfectly good. They can be using perfectly valid data. But the purpose that they're using it for are things we may want to look at more carefully.
2: So uh, just to be, it's for an example, when we think about our shopping behaviors, how AI might uh, affect or influence what we are purchasing, Judith?
0: Yes. So for instance, we're seeing just the, well, certainly we're seeing some concern around this, around election issues and advertising. But if you look at, if you look at all the data that is being collected about people, whether it's through your Google searches or it's devices you have in your home that know when you get up and when you eat, et cetera. Um, There's your shopping is being recorded, et cetera. There's a lot of behavioral data about you, about when do you feel vulnerable, you know, and decide to start eating for instance or something like that. And if you have um, very intelligent predictive systems that are motivated, not, so much to help you, but perhaps to get you to buy more things, they may be extremely good at knowing exactly when, when to suggest that you buy things or when to suggest that you vote for particular candidates or it's, you know, and things like that. So I think we want to look at both the uses of AI as well as how good it is at doing its intended purpose. Uh, we know uh, many of our listeners have
2: virtual assistants, and that's how they may uh, listen to public radio. I've also heard uh, from people who don't want virtual assistants in their house because they worry about how that uh, information is being tracked, whether they're listening to every word and, and putting certain uh, products uh, in your searches and things that you
0: should buy or even listen or watch, Judith. I mean, that's certainly something that people are concerned about. And you know whether it's you know, some of the concerns are valid. Some are not valid for existing um, assistance, but might be valid for others that you might have in the future. So I think here again, it's it's useful to distinguish what is a problem because we're collecting the privacy issue that we're collecting vast amounts of data about people. You know, how much control you have over this, um, all the big data issues. Then there's the AI piece, which is the analysis of that data. You know, how do you get the patterns out of it? What's the infa- What's the actual knowledge that you can pull out of that data? There's the application of AI, which is how is it being used? You know, is it being used to help you or is it being used to harm you? I know that, for instance, a lot of the research on persuasion, on using these techniques to make more persuasive AI, um, If you look at the university, the academic papers, a lot of them are around health systems, things that will help you lose weight or help you live a more healthy lifestyle. So the the research is being done with very pro-social intentions, but the underlying models and algorithms can be used to persuade you of all kinds of things. This is Where We Live. We're talking about artificial intelligence with guest Judith
2: Donath, uh, again, author of The Social Machine. If you have a question about AI, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you were mentioning, Judith, about um Artificial intelligence and machine learning to be used to, to help uh, consumers. Uh, one way uh, that AI is being used is, of course, in healthcare. And joining us now for more is Cade Metz. He's a New York Times reporter who covers artificial intelligence, driverless cars, and other emerging areas. Cade, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So, Cade, I understand you traveled to India to learn how AI was being used to help diagnose disease. Uh, tell us about where you went and, and what you saw.
1: I was in Madurai, which is at the southern tip of India. There's a, um, at least on the Indian subcontinent, there's a there's a famous hospital there called the Aravind, uh, where uh, essentially they'll, they'll take any patient from across the country, uh, across the world, really, whether you have money or not. Um, you can just see, you know, if you visit this hospital, people streaming in literally from all over the world. Um, and at this hospital... Uh, in conjunction with Google, uh, who developed the technology, the hospital is testing a system uh, that can automatically recognize signs of diabetic blindness in eye scans, which is uh, a particularly acute problem in India. The uh, rate of diabetes is high. Uh, if you have diabetes, you're at risk of blindness. And if um, you're regularly um, um, if your eyes are regularly looked at, uh, this can be diagnosed and it can be treated. The problem in India is that there are few doctors for such a large population. So per million people in India, there are only about 11 ophthalmologists. So the thinking with this system is um, is if you can get this automated system, um, which can look at, at a retinal scan and automatically detect these signs of blindness, If you can get that into rural areas where there are few doctors, uh, you can screen more people um, and those that need treatment, you can then get them to the care they need.
2: Uh, When you talk about this technology, is it a reliance on uh, what's known as neural networks? I mean, how how were they able to, I guess, program that uh, to be able to scan uh, these individuals uh, who are diabetic and are more at risk for blindness?
1: You're right. It's, it's driven by what's called a, a neural network, and this is the the key idea, the key technology that has really started to work over the past decade that is driving a lot of the change in AI. Uh, a neural network, it's called a neural network because it's loosely modeled, and I, I emphasize the word loosely, loosely modeled on the web of neurons in the brain. Um, but but really, it's it's a it's a complex mathematical system that can analyze data and learn to perform a task um, by doing that analysis. So, for instance, um, you can take thousands of eye scans, thousands of scans of the retina, feed it into a neural network, and this neural network looks for patterns in those eye scans um, and. It does this over the course of hours and days and sometimes weeks. Um, but in analyzing those eye scans, it can learn to detect those signs of diabetic blindness. Mm. Now, Cade, um,
2: Cade, what were some of yeah. the, the drawbacks to this technology where um, it was difficult for uh, the machine to scan a particular individual?
1: Well, I, you know, I I will emphasize, and, and this is true with a lot of the technologies um that are coming to the fore and, and that you're discussing today is that it's still early in the process. So at this hospital in India, this system is still under test. Um, they hope to widely deploy it, um, but they're still kind of working through not only the technical kinks, but also the regulatory kinks. Um, you know, any system like this is going to make um, mistakes and it's going to be limited in some ways. So, for instance, um, if an eye scan is a little bit blurry, um, it, it, the system may not be able to do the job it's designed to do. And I, I saw this this firsthand. There were some people who came in. Um, they had cataracts, for instance. That made it difficult uh, for the system to, to really read their eyes. Um, but a doctor, in some cases, um, would be able uh, to make a diagnosis um, uh On their own Um, and and this is just one hospital um, where where there are a lot of doctors and Mm. what they really want to do is get this in areas where there aren't and before they can do that they just need to test this and test this and test it again you want to get a confidence in these systems where you understand the limitations understand you know when they make mistakes um, before you can really get this in front of a lot of people
2: Cade Metz is a New York Times reporter who covers artificial intelligence, among other topics. Uh, We were hearing how uh, Cade traveled to India to learn how AI was being used to help diagnose disease. Um, So you mentioned that this helps fill a gap in places where there aren't a lot of eye doctors. But when this, uh, with Google helping uh, researchers and uh, helping these uh, doctors uh, come up with this type of technology, is there pushback, uh, depending on uh, where in the world this uh, technology? will be used? I mean, is this something that we could see here in the United States,
0: Kate?
1: We will as well. And in fact, um, a separate company has received FDA approval here in the U.S. uh, for a similar technology. They're starting to test this in various places, including New Orleans. Um, There are researchers in the U.K. who have built a similar system in, in Singapore. This is part of a larger trend. All those I just mentioned are specifically focused on this diabetic blindness issue, but the same technology can be applied to all sorts of medical scans. So whether or not you're looking for signs of, of cancer in a, in, uh, in a CT scan, uh, signs of stroke um, in, in a brain scan, the same idea can be applied um, to so many uh, types of, of medical images, and you know, when people hear this, they often wonder if this is going to replace doctors. Um, some people have made bold claims about um, uh, this really changing, for instance, the radiology field. I really think, um, and you see this in India, um, that in the, in the near term, this is going to be a complement to doctors. Um, the way it's going to work in India is, is you're going to be able to screen more people, but then once you detect a, 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 sign, a sign in a night scan, you're going to get that person to a doctor so they could be examined further. Mm. Um, it really is, at this point, a compliment to doctors as opposed to a replacement.
2: Uh, Judith Donath is also with us, advisor at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard and author of The Social Machine. Uh, Judith, uh, what's uh, your response uh, to hearing how AI is being used in this way? You
0: know, I think th- these are really excellent uses of it. Um, the issue with the, the doctors is a really interesting one, because again, this is how, we, how do we choose to work with these technologies? Because if you take this technology and say, well, what we really can do is just box up a bunch of these and just scan patients, that's your checkup for the year, and we'll see what's wrong with you. A lot of what you end up missing are all the things that doctors do when they converse with you and they talk about you know, your lifestyle, or are you comfortable at home, or why, why are you eating so much, or why are you living, You know, what's going on with you that goes along with just being able to measure what's happening in your body. So if you use it to replace the doctor, you've ended up in some ways worse off. If you say this can free up, this can help the doctor, and it frees up more time for them to get to know their patients well, it would certainly be an excellent complement. So a lot of it is how we use how we use these technologies to integrate with relationships among humans. And it's you know so it's not a question of the technology alone whether it's good or bad. In this case, you know, having that information is more useful than not having it, but we have, still have a lot of choices how we handle the changes it brings.
2: This is where we live. Uh, Today, we're learning about artificial intelligence with guests uh, Judith Donath, advisor at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, author of The Social Machine, and Cade Metz, a New York Times reporter who covers artificial intelligence, driverless cars, and other emerging areas. Uh, Cade, uh, we heard Judith uh, bring up uh, how uh, data uh, from the criminal justice system uh, is being used. and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about um, how some developments in uh, AI technology have actually gotten some push back. I'm thinking of uh, uh, some company, I think the New York Times reported uh, at least 25 uh, AI researchers, uh, people from Google, Facebook, uh, and Microsoft had signed a letter calling on Amazon to stop selling its facial recognition technology to law enforcement agencies because it's biased against women and people of color. Is that something that more and more experts are calling uh, into account? Absolutely.
1: This is, this is a an enormous issue, and if you talk to researchers, the best of researchers across the field of AI, uh, this is something that really worries them. The way these systems work, you know, I talked about a neural network and how they train on vast amounts of data. When you're training a facial recognition system, this is how you do it: you you collect thousands of of images of faces, and then the system learns to recognize a face by analyzing all those images. And what ends up happening is that the the people choosing that that data set that's used to train the system, they make these unconscious decisions just when they're choosing the faces. Um, And that can affect the system uh, down the road as it trains. And it trains on such an enormous amount of data that that we as humans can't completely understand why it's making the decisions it, it, it does. So it works really well, but we don't we don't really have insight into that process where it learns this, just because that process is so vast. Um, It happens across so many images. And so making these unconscious decisions um, at various points along the process uh, can influence it, and we don't really see that. And so what you really have to do is you have to make a concerted effort uh, to make sure, A, that your training set is diverse, but also in the end um as with those medical systems i talked about you have to you have to really test these systems and um get to the point where you're really confident that, that bias is not there um and that is i can't emphasize enough how difficult that is because there, even as you test there are all sorts of um biases that that you may not be thinking about um at this point we're starting to 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 think about and try to deal with the obvious ones. Um, But uh, there are all sorts of other less obvious biases that we're going to have to deal with as well.
2: Uh, Judith, when we were talking earlier about uh, data um, and how um, it can be used, but depending on the type of data that can uh, impact uh, the outcomes, uh, do we see systems that are trying to predict bad behavior or who will commit a crime? Is that something that's being
0: used by governments? Um certainly I think there's a lot of interest in that in China there's you know there's a huge number of AI systems being deployed across the world for all kinds of of things um there's things that look at you know anywhere that look at well if there's a bunch of crime happening here where you know where should we be putting our policemen where should we be patrolling um, yeah, you know, so that's a form of predictive work about where crimes are likely to happen. Work that's about, you know, deciding who should be paroled would be predicting who is who is going to act in a trustworthy way in, in the future. And I just want to highlight that question around data and biases because it's not just sort of a random collection of, of data. But if you think about what these training sets are, and why they're so biased is that if you have, for instance, a a police department or a group where there has already been some bias in who's being arrested, mm-hmm. but you're going to train all your data on the existing mugshots you have, that's your data. That's how it gets folded in. On the other hand, there's, you know, in the academic world, you end up with lots and lots of photographs of other young white Male AI researchers end up being the training data for a bunch of other applications, or in you know Silicon Valley startups, people use photographs that they have around. So there's reasons that these collections tend to be so undiverse. Um, one, one quick thing also is that somewhat like the way we learned how complicated vision was by trying to recreate it, one of the immediate things I hope comes out of some of this work is more recognition of how much bias is in our everyday lives. So if you look at the complaints about Amazon's recognition system, one of the issues um, it, it certainly came to mind when I read it was, maybe we should start doing the kind of testing we're doing on AI systems to see if their biases come out on the actual humans that are making some of these decisions, because now we're starting to see what those patterns are. We should be correcting it, not just with AI, but in our human decision-making also.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate Metz, who's with us from The New York Times, I did want to ask before we head to break, there's also um, the dual-use side of, of AI, you know, again, identifying faces, as you mentioned, but then how machines are then able to generate fake ones. Can you talk a little bit about uh, dual-use?
1: Yes I mean that's that's a problem with a lot of these technologies um, uh, as you develop these systems um, that uh, that can let's just take face recognition you can use it to recognize faces in your facebook newsfeed, um, uh which is you know a simple and you know positive application in many ways but then it can also um, be used for for surveillance um Um, Through governments and and large companies, Um, these same technologies, uh, governments right now are applying this uh, potentially to autonomous weapons. Um, uh, And you could go down the line with with all sorts of AI technologies that are coming to the fore where there's a positive use and there's a negative use. And then, then of course, not everyone can agree on on which are the positive and, and, and which are the negative. Um, you also mentioned the generation of images, and that's um, that is particularly interesting as well. These same systems that can recognize something uh, can be turned around and be used to generate something. So if you can, if it can recognize a face, you can essentially flip the system around, and you can use it to generate a face. Um, these are called GANs, generative adversarial networks, and they are they are getting remarkably effective. Um, they can produce faces, which are essentially fake people, that are indistinguishable uh, from, from the real thing. Um, and as time goes on, that, that type of system is only going to improve. Um, the same thing is happening with language, so when it comes to machines generating language. And um, what we're going to see is, is it's just going to become easier and easier and easier for anyone through machines to create so-called fake data. Um, And that has been a problem, fake data, in recent years. And through technology, it may may be more of a problem in the years to come.
2: Kate Metz, again, is a New York Times reporter who covers artificial intelligence, driverless cars, and other emerging areas. Uh, Kate, we will uh, tweet out links to your stories uh, at where we live. But we appreciate your time today. Thank you.
1: Thank
0: you.
2: From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. We want to get more into the privacy implications of AI. That's coming up after the break. And what privacy concerns do you have about all that data that's stored about us? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My smartphone recognizes my face and unlocks my phone. Super convenient. But what is Google doing with my photo and the millions of others that use this facial recognition? Who or what actually controls our information, our identities? You can join our conversation, 860 275 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. With us from Harvard is Judith Donath, advisor at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University, author of The Social Machine. And joining us now is Fred Scholl, associate teaching professor of cybersecurity and director of the cybersecurity program at the School of Engineering at Quinnipiac University. Fred, welcome to our show.
4: Thank you good morning
2: so we want to talk about privacy and security when we're thinking about AI. I mentioned uh, facial recognition where is my photo going Should I be concerned?
4: Well nobody knows exactly where your photo is going so it's going out in a Google cloud uh, server which is it's not really up in the cloud it's actually down on the ground in a server that they maintain um, i I'm I believe that companies like Google, Amazon and Microsoft they're they're doing a good job protecting the information so I'm not too concerned about that. My biggest concern is who are they sharing it with number 1 and what happens to it um uh you know when let's say I look different or I get old where you know where is this data going and who's keeping track of it so it's pretty much up to Google exactly how they want to handle it which uh, you know, is a concern for me and maybe a concern for other people. Mm.
2: So uh, yeah, with taking that uh, into account, uh, w- you know, when we mm-hmm. think about uh, whether we want to um, activate that, uh, that feature on our smartphones or if we uh, yeah. look at our privacy uh, selections or settings on Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, what should consumers be really thinking about? And if I do hit uh, the privacy settings, I don't want a lot of people looking at my Facebook profile. Is that really working?
4: again you know with all so we teach students i've been in the security field for quite a while we teach students how to secure data how to secure applications and it's uh it needs to be done as a a whole system approach and to be honest you know we don't really know how to do it yet right so we're still the field is still in a learning mode and so when you say uh, where is it so we don't, uh, even the Googles of the world don't know exactly whether the data is secure or not. So as a consumer, yes, you should look at these um, privacy settings. Facebook has privacy settings. I was just looking at Alexa. They have privacy settings for their uh, app, you know their, uh, application. These smart home devices have privacy settings. So I think, um, number one, consumers need to look, you know, take the time to go look at what these settings are and configure them to the best that they can with what's offered by the vendors. And then the second thing is just use some common sense, and not everybody's doing this, but use common sense as to what you're going to post online and what you're going to share. So I don't use the, um, uh, you know, I stopped using Waze, the, the Google Map feature, even though it's, very, uh, it may be beneficial. I just, you know, I don't want, uh, you know, them knowing exactly where I am all the time. So I think it's just a, you know, combination of common sense and and reviewing the settings on the applications that are out there.
2: Uh, Judith, uh, what's your response? Uh, hearing uh, Fred talk about uh, where the information is going, and we really don't know, right? We don't
0: know, and part of it is. Some of these devices or some of these companies may be very trustworthy. Others may be less so. Um, You may have locked down privacy settings on your Alexa, but you're at a dinner party at someone else's house and they haven't, or they're using a device from a little company that doesn't really have a good privacy record or good security. So I think we can... We can be careful. We can also be pretty sure that an enormous amount of data about ourselves, unless we go to extreme, like, Spartan measures, is out there. So I think a really important piece is we need to concentrate on what are our concerns about how that is being used. And, you know, they come down to things like we're concerned about decisions being made about us. Based on on data about us, for instance, are we going to lose insurance because there's data that shows us leading an unhealthy life or having too many drinks or something? There's the concern that um, a government is going to, you know, either use it in some ways that's detrimental to us or that we're going to have a government in the future that is more authoritarian. And how do, you know, what do we want to do to protect ourselves from that? And then we can be concerned about the vast amount of marketing data that is being assembled and the persuasiveness that it's going to be used with us. And so I think a lot of the key isn't just being careful about the data, but thinking about what are the large entities and institutions around us? How are they going to be using it? And what are the ways we want to influence them. A lot of it comes down to you know, being serious about who you vote for, about being thoughtful about what you watch or about looking at advertising, being careful about what you read. So it's not just about the data that's going out, but what can you control about how the sort of products of that data analysis are being used to control or influence you. Mm-hmm.
2: We got a Facebook comment from Richard who writes, driverless cars or cars run by AI or computers are so vulnerable to being taken over by hackers. I don't understand why they're even being allowed to go forward. Who or what's behind them? Have the lobbyists already won the day in Congress? Uh, Fred Scholl, uh, what's your uh, response to uh, that comment from Richard? Uh, Again, that's a lot of uh, uh, distrust that he has of this uh, evolving technology.
4: All right. So I I can sympathize with that comment. So I, I um I believe that we do I don't know if the lobbyists have, have won in DC, but I think we do need um uh we we need to try to influence people in Washington to give more rights to individuals. I'm not a big fan of government regulation myself, but I think Uh, You know, and I'm a tech person, but the tech industry, to some extent, has gotten uh, a little bit out of hand. And there's a a saying in the security industry, and I know it comes from other industries, trust but verify. So, yes, we can trust some of these organizations, but individuals should have a right to verify who's who's using their information, to whom is it being shared, and they should be able to delete it. You know, this this kind of law has been passed in Europe. We need something like that here. So um, we just need to move the needle over a little bit and uh, extend, you know, the privacy balance uh, more over to towards consumers. We, consumers can't do it on their own. So I think we're going to need more regulation to protect, you know, to protect ourselves. And we are. We don't want to go down this path of. Uh, sort of un, unfettered tech companies because it's not going to end well.
2: Mm. well. Fred, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, resources for listeners who, who want to learn more about um, how this technology is changing, how it's impacting them, and how they can, uh, you, know, uh, you know, take uh, responsibility or feel like they're more in control of their data.
4: Resources? Um uh, well I, I just have this book in front of me which I read. It's by Michael Scherthoff called Exploding Data. I think it's really good. And he talks about sort of newer uh approaches to privacy since people do I have a Facebook account. People like to go on Facebook and share information, but as Judith was saying, you don't you know, you wanna run your own life and be autonomous and you don't wanna have of, uh, you know, uncontrolled influence through digital channels to do things that you may not want, want to do. So I think that book is a good introduction for people who want to read more about what's happening mm-hmm. in this field.
2: Uh, Judith, again, uh, we're running out of time, but uh, resources for our listeners. I know you're the author of The Social Machine. Uh-huh. So
0: I, I talk some about privacy in there. I think there's a tremendous amount of just news stories out there. Um, you know, I don't have a a single, there's, for instance, on the driverless cars, um, Bruce Schneier is a really good expert on questions around the, um, the future of the in, in Internet of Things. But um, just keep reading and keep their eyes open and follow discussions about it um, and just be, you know, be aware of, of what the changing technologies are. I want to thank our
2: guests uh, for a really interesting conversation today. Judith Donath, again, advisor at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, also author of The Social Machine. Thank you, Judith. Thank you. Also, Fred Scholl is associate teaching professor of cybersecurity and director of the cybersecurity program at the School of Engineering at Quinnipiac University. Fred, thanks for your time. Sure.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Alpathanchel. Today's show produced by Seth Blair. Also thanks to Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. We appreciate her each and every day. Also special thanks to Punkage Prakash and Cormac Nealy for that Age of Ultron tip. I'm Lucy Alpathanchel. Thanks for listening.